The pandemic has once more sunk its teeth into India. On May 9th, India's public health officials reported to the World Health Organization that there were over 400,000 confirmed COVID cases. This equates to an increase of nearly 250% from April. Keep in mind that that's the number of confirmed cases, which doesn't include anyone who doesn't have access to a test. Virologists predict that daily case numbers are going to continue to rise. With an under-resourced and heavily privatized healthcare system, people are relying immensely on community support. And it's important that we all show up. In our show notes, you'll find a link to a document that lists out a variety of organizations and grassroots efforts rallying to support India through this wave of COVID. The list is transparent about who is maintaining it, when it was most recently updated, and even if a particular organization takes international credit cards. Check it out in our show notes and please donate if you can. I'm Sylvia Pong. I'm John Ray Serapio. You're listening to At The Moment by AZ Media. So if you're following the news last fall, you probably heard about the farmers' protests in India. But we wanted to return to this historic moment, especially with all that's been happening with the rise of COVID cases. Believe it or not, people are still going out to protest, even in the midst of COVID-devastating India. This revolutionary moment is still happening. It's true. And continuing to rally demonstrates both the urgency of the situation and the resilience and dedication of the farmers. Over 200 farmers have already lost their lives during these protests due to accidents, weather exposure, suicide, and possibly police violence. Possibly? Yeah. Journalists who report on instances of police violence have been arrested on charges of sedition. So while the police might deny any responsibility in the deaths of protesters... That doesn't necessarily mean they weren't involved. Right. And even though major media outlets in the States haven't really been reporting on the protests since last year, the revolutionary potential of the Indian farmers' protests continues to stir. And we want to spend this episode unpacking that. So to go back a little bit, this whole movement was sparked in August of 2020 when the Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi, and the far-right Bharatiya Janata Party, aka the BJP, introduced Three laws that will restructure the agricultural economy in India. Let's take a sec to understand the political context here. So India uses a parliamentary system, which is a legislative body of government structured around numerous political parties. The BJP is one of the many active political parties in India. With so many parties, it can be hard for any one party to win a majority of votes. So they usually have to collaborate and form coalition governments. Multiple parties under a single coalition banner are more likely to bag a majority of votes and assume power than any one party working alone. However, in India's last two national elections, Modi and the BJP have won outright parliamentary majorities. This hasn't happened in over 30 years. And this means that the BJP did not have to form a coalition government. Their control of India's parliament is singular. And they recently used this majority power to pass three laws that will restructure India's agricultural economy in a way that negatively affects the farmers. 
And let's break this all down, so. Okay, so first, there's the Essential Commodities Amendment Act. This bill strips certain crops of their status as quote-unquote essential, meaning that the government will no longer regulate the price of those previously essential crops, except in times of crises. And the central government says that this will attract private and foreign direct investment into India's agricultural sector. Mm. Another law is the Farmers Produce Trade and Commerce Promotion and Facilitation Act. This bill means that farmers can sell their crops on an open market. An open market is where the economic transactions are not regulated or protected by the government. So before this law, farmers would sell at markets called montis, where the minimum price of various crops are guaranteed by the government agencies. So the government still insists that montis will continue under the new laws. However, farming advocates see this as a transitional step in removing economic protections for farmers altogether. And finally, there is a Farmers Environmental Protection Agreement of Price 2020 Assurance. This basically introduces a practice in which farmers negotiate contracts with buyers, often companies, to produce their crops. So these farmers then sell to the buyer at whatever price the two of them have already agreed upon. And this is called contract farming. All of this can happen even before the farmer sows a single seed. So if you've ever negotiated rent with a landlord or maybe salary with your company, you know how complicated that kind of stuff could be. Mm, I hate negotiating with landlords. Right? Especially now in New York City. I can imagine that so many people are trying to keep their COVID-era rent prices, but landlords must be trying to raise them like threefold now since mm. we're quote-unquote reopening. Oh yeah, that's for sure. Moment of silence for all y'all in New York City who don't live in a rent-stabilized apartment. Yeah, and that's kind of like how these farmers feel. The freedom that all three laws are giving to corporations is threatening their livelihoods. Right, I would imagine it would be like the farmers coming into a room Corporations being like, yes, of course, we'll negotiate. But just like, you know, don't mind the team of lawyers standing behind me or the fact that each of our shareholders is from a different major political family. Like, don't mm. worry, we'll negotiate fairly. Oh, I would not want to be in that room. So protesters themselves have raised similar concerns about loopholes and government bias towards corporations regarding this contract farming. They worry that these contract negotiations will ultimately benefit the corporations, obviously, that are involved rather than protect the farmers. Mm. So, John, to be honest, I'm not much of an econ person. You know that I'm not either. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we both understand how the actual impact of these laws can be kind of unclear for some mm. listeners. But pretty much what you need to understand is that these laws minimize government responsibilities in regulating the agricultural industries. This risks lower selling prices for farmers, higher economic precarity for small farmers, and more involvement by corporations. Yeah, we have to understand that these laws threaten the livelihoods of about 60% of India's population. That's mm. a lot of people. And since August 2020, farmers have been protesting against these laws. This is a challenge that started at the state level and has developed into a national movement. A movement that has come together at the nation's capital, Delhi. The farmers are demanding that all three laws be repealed. And to help us understand the ongoing protests, our reporter Sahil sat down with Chairman Gurinder Singh Khalsa of Sikhs PAC. Sikhs PAC is the United States' first political action committee devoted to the interests of the Sikh community here in America. Chairman Khalsa himself comes from a farming family. I was born and raised in a village of Adoi near Ambala uh, in Haryana. 
and uh, my father were in generations in farming and we've been farming sugarcane wheat rice and uh, in addition to that we also have mango orchards guava orchard and other uh, fruits and vegetables because uh, we are only 100 miles north of new delhi so a lot of communities in uh, in our area they grow cash crops such as fruits and vegetables and uh, sell in the market in delhi Chairman Kosla talked to us about how India's central government sneakily passed these three laws during the ongoing pandemic. Government of India instead of working after one year, you know, it's not just happened yesterday, it's you know over uh, over one year and still they are in the same position where they were a year ago. It means government did not take it seriously and also government uh, tried to utilize that advantage of covid for uh, passing these kind of laws through bypass back doors and government tried to figure out how they could uh, utilize this fear mongering kind of techniques to utilize for their own benefit instead of for the greater good of the, the society and for the greater good of the indians the greater good that chairman kalsa is referring to here is pretty simple the government needs to make sure that people have ready access to medical care they need, especially during a global pandemic. They also have to ensure that their people are fed. Passing these laws during the pandemic is insidious, to say the least. And the threat they pose to India's small farmers puts an entire nation's food security at risk. And we have to understand that India's agricultural system has a long and contentious history. And we're only going to cover a small portion of it here. But let's start in 1943. In 1943, Mm -hmm. India was under British colonial rule. In the Bengal province, which is now the country of Bangladesh and the Indian state of West Bengal, people suffered the Bengal famine. Under former Prime Minister Winston Churchill's leadership, the British purposely diverted food and medical aid meant for Bengal to British soldiers. This wartime policy is considered a pretty significant cause of the famine. The Bengal famine killed between 2.1 and 3 million people. And weirdly enough, a lot of people in the West still lift Winston Churchill up as a war hero, rather than looking at a lot of vicious crimes he's committed as an imperialist. If you don't believe me, like, have y'all watched The Crown? Come on, Winston. Super entertaining show, sure, but they gave Churchill this fanfare entrance right in the first episode. I remember that. That was gross. And to make matters worse, the British soldiers that did receive the food and medical aid were already well supplied. Wow, I wish I could say I was surprised about that, but... Yeah. This atrocity is still known and felt in living memory. The deadly food shortage encouraged a post-independence India to reimagine its food system. They surveyed what the British Empire left to them and sought to prevent another mass famine. In the early 60s, uh, that time, as we all know that India was having great shortage of grain, uh, food, you know, especially wheat and rice to, to feed this large country. 360 million people were there at that time, size of the population we have right now in the U.S. That time, without the Green Revolution, our mechanized system, it was hard to be fully dependent on our own farming in India. And India was very much dependent on foreign countries for getting grains. The key to any farmer's economic success is their land. And not just access to nutritious land right for farming, but ownership over that land. Mm-hmm. One major concern of the recent farm bills is that it'll force already precarious farmers off of their land. 
Indian farming is very intensive because the uh, majority of people do not have more than uh, 10 acres of land. So it's uh, land acquisition is very intensive and they cannot afford to have a mechanized system on an individual basis, you know. Farmers, farming unions, various political opposition parties, academics, and even celebrities have criticized the farm bills. They say that these laws favor the interests of corporations and a few wealthy people rather than worrying about the well-being of the farmers. The idea of corporations pressuring and manipulating political structures for personal gain is nothing new. Mm. We see a lot of this in the U.S., from corporations donating to political campaigns that work in their favor, I'm looking at you, oil industry, mm-hmm. to funding nonprofit think tanks that ultimately influence policy decisions. But before we really get into corporate interest in farming, we're going to have to backtrack a little bit. So stay tuned for that after this break. You're listening to At The Moment, Asian American News. I'm Sahil Nisha, reporter at AZ Media. In this episode, we look at the Indian farmer struggle and look to connect it to farming movements here in the United States. I sat down with Chairman Gurinder Singh Khalsa to discuss his perspective on the current movement in India. If you'd like to learn more about the other stories I've reported on, check out our last episode on the history of queer and trans-Asian activism in the U.S. Thank you for listening. Before the break, Chairman Khalsa referred to the Green Revolution. This was a period during the 1950s and 60s when the new technologies, chemical fertilizers, and irrigation infrastructures were introduced in parts of the Global South that included Mexico, the Philippines, Brazil, and India. And it was a huge step in mechanizing India's agricultural system. Green Revolution was good because that was the need of the time because India wanted to be self-dependent on agriculture. And it was very hard to get because it's not just the famine, but also when uh, any country is not self-dependent on food, the other countries take advantage and uh, we don't want that. Okay, so the Green Revolution allowed India to become agriculturally self-reliant? Yeah, and it was really helpful in pulling the country from the brink of famine. Mm. But some of the lasting consequences of the Green Revolution are just coming to light, according to Chairman Khalsa. India took a big initiative to mechanize the agriculture and the Green Revolution. But as we know, because of overutilization of pesticides, insecticides, overutilization of fertilizers, chemicals, that has turned a lot of areas of Punjab into poisonous barren lands, you know. So not only has the extensive use of harsh chemicals impacted the quality and the fertility of the soil, but it has also physically hurt the people of Punjab. Punjabis are uh, getting cancer. And that cancer is directly related to those pesticides and insecticides and chemical fertilizers being used. That is a direct impact. A lot of companies, they are not complying with the government regulations and they are pumping chemicals instead of treating them, having treatment plants, rather they are uh, illegally pumping chemicals thousands of feet down underground and those will be very dangerous and they are already dangerous for the health of those people, those are drinking that water. The environmental impacts of insecticides and agricultural mechanization could be a whole nother episode on its own. But we want to focus on the economic aspect 
of the Green Revolution in India. Right. And one significant technological advancement of the Green Revolution was the use of hybridized seeds. It required farmers to use expensive and dangerous insecticides. So in order to afford insecticides and other modern agricultural elements, farmers would take out high-interest loans, which can be really difficult to pay off. For anyone who's seen the movie Minari, it's clear that farming is a very stressful industry. Mm. One bad call and the farmer becomes trapped in a cycle of debt, which can be debilitating for a farmer's mental health too. Data from the National Crime Records Bureau, an Indian government agency responsible for collecting and analyzing crime data, suggests that there is an average of 28 farmer suicides a day. God, that's so awful. And the latest data on farmer suicides is from 2019. So the number doesn't even account for the pandemic's presumed like massive emotional and economic toll. Right. And to secure farmers' economic potential, the government established the minimum support prices, also known as the MSP. The idea is that if no one buys your crop, the government will protect the farmer and purchase certain crops at the minimum support prices. That way, farmers won't suffer any unexpected loss of income. The Green Revolution was possible only because of MSP. The reason being, if you have a minimum support price, then you know for sure you will get this much price. And nine out of ten times, the government do not have to pay out of their pocket. You know, it's a very similar, like we do have SBA, you know, small business administration loans in, in, in the U.S. And the majority of businesses are 80% are small businesses in the U.S. In that one, government does not fund the loan. Government just gives the assurance, gives the guarantee in case that loan is defaulted in that situation. The Green Revolution promised increased crop production. With MSP, the Green Revolution worked for the farmers. They knew that if crops weren't selling, the government would take them off their hands in exchange for MSP. Mm. MSPs are designed to protect small farmers from corporate-friendly open market. And we've already gotten a glimpse of what actually could happen if MSPs were removed. Bihar, a state in eastern India, got rid of their MSP in 2006. And farmers in Bihar has since seen a decline in their crop prices, which is really bad for them. Removing MSP creates a buyer's market by weakening the farmer's selling positions. So companies are always looking to make a profit, right? Yeah. So when they're not being checked by the government agencies, the companies will try to drive down the prices of the crops to maximize their profit margins. And this forces already indebted farmers to compete on the open market with no minimum support price, which is ultimately really unfair because not only does this just threaten their business, but it also threatens their lives. This movement is obviously not happening in a vacuum. For example, here in the U.S., the Hmong American Farmers Association, or HAFA, has been working for nearly a decade to build security for Hmong American farmers. HAFA was included in the state of Minnesota's infrastructure bonding bill, meaning they will be receiving funding from the state. HAFA will finally be able to buy the land their members have been leasing and farming for years. And this is such an incredible achievement for these Hmong American farmers. Mm. This is a really great opportunity for these families to build economic security. Mm. But since August, the protests in India have grown into a movement with immense revolutionary potential and far-reaching implications beyond the farmers themselves. 
and this is a blessing in disguise for every common person in india because this revolution is not just farmers revolution this is a revolution of next chapter of indian democracy where there is no place for communalism there is no place for uh, these kind of uh, forces and this will turn into a big revolution for uh, more transparency more uh, secular beliefs and for accountability when democracies close their ears to the voices of the people the people must respond they must resist being rendered voiceless and these protesters are doing just that we must remain wary of our governments and who they ally themselves with With international solidarity actions being more and more accessible, we have less and less of an excuse to not be involved where we can, right? Mm. We cannot grow complacent simply with the rhetoric of democracy. We must instead demand the realities of democracy. Exactly. And we'll be right back with Chairman Kalsa. Hey there, John Ray here, co-host of At The Moment. At AZ Media, we strive to uplift our communities and report on the most important issues. To support our work, subscribe to our pod wherever you listen, and please consider donating to our coffee at coffee.com/azmedia. That's ko-fi.azimedia. Our coffee page will be linked in the show notes as well. Thank y'all for listening. The farmers' protests have triggered a wave of solidarity all across the world, including here in the United States. We need the farmers, not only in India, all over the whole world. These solidarity protests enhance the call of the farmers in India to repeal the farm bills. Chairman Kalsa actually organized a protest in Indianapolis late last year. You know, we are making uh, aware of people here. Those are uh, Indian diaspora, especially Sikh diaspora in, uh, in U.S., Canada, and also at the same time, we are bringing this attention to the elected officials here in the U.S. and that this is something happening in India because it's not just the farmers. We are also protesting against atrocities, human violations done by the government and its agencies you know and the police atrocities the human rights violation that's why international media international celebrities they are interfering because of overstepping of human rights violation that's why international celebrities international leaders are condemning indian government's uh, behavior how they are treating their own farmers their own citizens When international celebrities have spoken out about these protests, they have been ridiculed and threatened by India's current ruling party. His international pop star Rihanna has backed the farmers agitation in a tweet that she put out on Tuesday evening and Rihanna's tweet immediately broke the internet. It got more than 35,000 retweets and 60,000 favorites, that's 60,000 likes in a matter of just 1 hour. After Rihanna and Greta Thunberg platformed resources and information about the protests, the current ruling party of India, the BJP and their followers, burned their photos and launched attacks on them via Twitter. Okay, that's kind of harsh. <laughs> yeah. Um I don't love that they did that to my Gauri. 
But luckily, there have been other efforts to uplift the protests that haven't been met with as much backlash. This includes the work of the Jakarta Movement, which is a grassroots community building organization that empowers, educates, and organizes Punjabi Sikhs and other marginalized communities. They work to connect anti-Black police violence in the U.S. to anti-Sikh state violence in India. Yeah, and the Jakarta Movement drafted a letter in Punjabi to help members of the diaspora in the U.S. to talk to their parents about the Black Lives Matter movement. It's picked up actually a lot of traction during the protests last summer. We've linked the letter in our show notes. The work that they've been doing has been really inspiring. And more recently, mm-hmm. the Jakarta Movement organized a car rally in the San Francisco area to the India consulate in the city. In both India and the U.S., Punjabi and Haryanvi Sikhs have championed the struggle. Mm-hmm. There we go. We love to see international solidarity. Uh, my understanding is that government should take serious, especially Sikh farmers. They will not bend on this. And that will uh, create more instability in India, even in the government. Because government has underestimated the strength and uh, morale of farmers. Similarly, 87 farming unions in the U.S. drafted and signed a letter of support to the Indian farmers. They drew parallels between the fight to repeal the three farming bills and struggles U.S. farmers went through. I'm honestly so glad that we're like recognizing shared struggles beyond borders. For me, it's just really inspiring to see such international discourse taking place on a grassroots level. Hmm. The letter by the U.S. farming unions clarifies that, you know, while the U.S. does provide more support for agriculture than many countries, the support isn't always equitable. Right. Black, Indigenous, Latinx, and Asian Pacific farmers are explicitly recognized as being underrepresented in our subsidy structure. The U.S. generally prefers to support larger and more corporate farming operations, which really reminds me of the PPP back in the summer that was supposed to support small businesses, but ended up funding all these corporate companies. Mm, Yeah, that's a good comparison. And the government in India definitely also favors corporations. And this is a really key concern for the current movement. And while we have seen a lot of promising support for these farmers, corporatization, as it is across the world, is always a constant threat. Yeah. And Chairman Kalsa mentioned that the BJP must deal with this issue sensibly and meet the protesters' demand. Especially when the diaspora is making demands of their respective governments and especially with international attention on India. They, if they will not respectfully, if the government of India will not respectfully deal this issue, this will be a very big issue on international stage and it will damage the image of Indian government. And Indian government is right now so powerful, especially main agenda for dividing India and taking votes on the basis of religion. The BJP follows a far-right ideology of Hindu nationalism that aims to reshape India into an exclusionary Hindu nation rather than a politically secular and religiously diverse one. They even go as far to frame themselves as defending a threatened Hindu culture. And one example of this is in 2019 when the BJP passed the Citizenship Amendment Act, which is basically a pathway towards citizenship for persecuted religious minorities from Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. This law was even criticized as discriminating against persecuted Muslims from these countries. And more recently, in an attempt to weaken the ongoing farmers' protests, 
the central government tried to reframe them as a violent Sikh separatist movement rather than a movement to protect farmers' rights. This is a blatant attempt to misrepresent the movement and make it an issue of communalism rather than economy. And John Ray, we're all too familiar with governments putting the violent label on oppressed groups. <laughs> yeah, it's like a literal pattern in all of our previous episodes. Mm. But the BJP and their affiliated political organizations have core ideological texts, a couple of which falsely claim that the only purpose of Sikhism is to protect Hinduism. And what we need to understand is that India is a massively diverse democracy. A majority of the population is Hindu. The next most populous religion is Islam. And India has the largest population of Muslims in a non-Muslim country. Smaller but still significant religions include Christianity, Sikhism, Buddhism, and Jainism. The BJP holding so much power is concerning because their Hindu nationalist agenda conflicts with the multicultural and diverse reality of India's population. This revolution will be a turning point in the history of India. India is getting into a mature democracy. And for maturity of democracy, there is no place, no space for uh, religious forces. It needs to be secular because India is so pluralistic. India is with multi-faith, multi-culture, multi-lingual. So this is the turning point. It is so important for leaders to recognize the function that they're supposed to serve in democracy, to deploy the will of the people. People understand that government job is not how you worship and where do you worship. Government job is how you can give safety, security, and justice. Government job is how you can provide uh, dignity and a respect to every human being. Government job is how you can provide economic and education opportunities. Rest, how I'm praying to God, whether I believe in God or not, that needs to be left with the individuals. And any party who will have a preference based on religion or, or, or a caste or a, or a race, their days are numbered, regardless. These farming laws do not benefit the protesting farmers, the working class, the market laborers. Instead, these bills put 60% of the livelihood of India's population at risk. And these laws serve the corporate bodies of India. The capitalist class will, uh, they will get benefit. You know, in India, there is uh, inequality and there will be more corporate houses. They will control like we have seen in, in America. If they're looking at America is the best system, no. Look, since in the last 100 years, inequality has gone so far. Wealth inequality is increasing globally. And as more and more of our most basic needs are concentrated in the hands of just a few, those basic needs will become increasingly expensive. And inevitably, this will price out the most economically vulnerable populations from accessing food, water, shelter, or health care. Privatizing agricultural production opens the door for the price gouging of staple foods and basic ingredients. The farmers currently protesting in India are not just fighting for their own economic security. They're fighting for our food security. A common protest call is no farmers, no food. And yes, while it's literally true, mm -hmm. remember that this isn't just a matter of farmers' rights. This is a matter of the privatization of food resources and land. We should never play with these kind of fires. 
because uh, when we ignite a fire, we can save ourselves, but we underestimate what kind of direct or indirect damage it will bring for generations to come. The fight against privatization, against corporatization, and against heartless greed did not begin and certainly will not end with this farmer's protest. But this will certainly prove a decisive battleground in this raging conflict. And that's a wrap. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at az.media. This episode was produced by Cynthia Liu, Blake Lu Murin, and Stacey Wong. Edited by Cynthia Liu. Story research led by Sahil Nisha. And reporting by Alina Panik. Supported by John Ray Serapio and Sylvia Pong. Scripting by Blake Lu Murwin. Our music is by Satoru Ono. Cover art by Susu Schrauber. And special thanks to Tiffany Huang, Nevada Tanetti, Alice Liu, and Sabine Shawani. I'm your host, Sylvia Pong. And I'm John Ray Serapio. Thank you for listening. Join us next time to talk about the militarization of American Samoa youth. Bye, y'all. <laughs>